provide my greetings to those who have already been offered to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I uh, wanted to spend this morning with you reviewing something that has been uh, instrumental in renewing my own heart and mind around the gospel, and hopefully it will do the same for you. I really um, resonate with the Reformed worship tradition where we, we rehearse the gospel over and over again through a call to worship, through the songs that we sing, through confession of sin, assurance of pardon. I hope to rehearse the truths of the gospel for you this morning as well through the preaching of God's word. I understand that you've been in the gospel according to Luke, um, probably will be until Jesus returns. Uh, I know the pace at which Craig typically um, moves his way through Scripture. Um, I think you were 40 years in Deuteronomy like the children of Israel. And um, this morning I, I'm going to take a, an alternate approach. I'm going to take more of a survey of a scriptural theme, of a biblical theme, that of, uh, <clears throat> that of hungering and thirsting during our Advent season, um, the fellowship in which I'm a member, we were looking also in the Gospel of Matthew, but primarily we were looking at the Beatitudes, and um, we were meditating on the blessed promises that are contained within there, specifically the for they shalls. That, that seemed to be fitting time to consider that during the Advent season, when you're in the season of what Christ has already done, but yet what is still yet to be done, the promise of His coming again when all things will be made new, when all wrongs will be finally righted. And the blessed are those, for they shall. It's the for they shallness of those sayings that really captured our spirit. And I was uh, tasked with um, teaching on the, for they shall be satisfied. Well, well, who shall be satisfied? Well, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And I settled in on this metaphor, this Holy Spirit-inspired image that's used from Genesis to Revelation and the whole of God's revelation to us of eating and drinking. Why would He choose those who hunger and thirst? And how is our hunger and thirst going to be satisfied? How is God going to satisfy our hunger and our thirst for righteousness? And so even this morning, I was, as I was um, making my way over here, I just started considering all the ways in which food becomes um, the primary means which God uses to communicate or um, bring about the redemption of his people from Genesis to Revelation, where for whatever reason, eating and drinking is linked with the rise and fall of mankind. The first time that you see this is, of course, in the garden, where you would expect it to be, right? That's, I have provided for you every good thing to eat, and you can eat from any tree. And while the blessing of God came through the provision of food, also the fall of humanity came through choosing to dine with the demon and accept the hospitality of our enemy. As you continue to work your way through 
even the book of Genesis, you see the folly of Noah involving him drinking too much. You see the hospitality of Abraham entertaining angels unbeknownst. You see Jacob exploiting his uh, opportunity over Esau, him deceiving his father Isaac. You see the restoration of Joseph through a famine and then through provision. You see the deliverance of Moses and the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt through a Passover meal. You see God's provision for the nation of Israel through manna and daily bread in the wilderness. You see their testing. You see their um, being stuffed with more quail than they could fit in their bellies as God um, rebuked them. The promise of Canaan is a promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. The testing and the promotion of Daniel and his friends in Babylon revolved around what they would eat. The position of Nehemiah, to be before a king, to, to receive a blessing, was that he was a cupbearer whose face was downcast, which is always a good way to get the king's attention. When you're supposed to be the one who's making sure the drink is not poisoned and all of a sudden you don't look so well, you get the king's attention. Is everything okay? The circumstances and the opportunity of Esther through the folly of her king, or would-be king, and the redemption of her people as, he, as she invites him to a, a meal where she exposes the plan and the wickedness of those that would kill her and God's people. It goes on and on. You see that through Peter's, the prophecy of Peter's denial of his Lord, the restoration of Peter at the end of John's gospel uh, over some fish. Um, the beginning of John's gospel, the first sign pointing to Jesus is a sign revolving, uh, involving drink. Peter's vision and Inviting the Gentiles uh, into the church and God's making that known to him was through eating and drinking and the hypocrisy of Peter that's being exposed as he led others away from the truth of the gospel that Paul confronted him in that we see accounted for in the book of Galatians. Paul's instruction to the Corinthians involves food. John's revelation of glory and judgment along with all the prophets before him revolving around eating and drinking, the banquets and the feasts that are promised, and the bitter food for those who would reject God's goodness. We are told by David in Psalm 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good. As you, I mean, if you, could, uh, if you could see my waistline, you could see I haven't just meditated on this. So what is it about eating and drinking that is so central to what God is trying to communicate to us? I think the old saying, you are what you eat, hopefully will be truthful and applicable to us this morning. Because what I hope to do is to take you on a progressive dinner, so to speak. To go from house to house with Jesus meal to meal, and to rehearse the truths of the gospel that we might be what we eat this morning, that we might imbibe and feast and drink of the grace of God and the goodness of God, and that we might together this morning taste and see that he is good. Now, if you were to describe Jesus uh, using 
his favorite phrase, the Son of Man, a prophetic title that he took from Daniel, uh, pointing to the fact that he was the one through whom all the nations would bow and all authority on heaven and earth would be given. Um, the Son of Man, we are told in several places uh, in Luke's gospel, we know what he came to do. He came to seek and save those who are lost. That's why the Son of Man came. When you follow that phrase or you look for that phrase elsewhere, you see it also in Mark's gospel, and we're told what he didn't come to do. Mark tells us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. When we see that phrase, the Son of Man, in Scripture, in those two instances, we're told his mission, his purpose, the why he came, the what he came to accomplish. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and to give his life as a ransom and to serve. Now, if you were going to pick some other description to associate with the Son of Man, what would you pick? Maybe that he came preaching and teaching. Maybe that he came healing. Matthew, which you guys will probably get to in chapter 11 in a, few, in a while. <laughs> Matthew says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Isn't that interesting? Of all the things that you could associate with the Son of Man whom all authority on heaven and earth is being given, to whom all nations and peoples and tribes and tongues. Would worship and follow, eating and drinking. Isn't that an interesting way to describe him? See, that's the how he came. That is how he came to seek and save the lost. That's how he came to give his life away. That's how he came to call those who were far from God to join him at the table and to become a part of the family of God by eating and drinking with him. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to look at a few meals in Luke's gospel. Um, you can look at Luke's gospel similar to the book of Acts where he's pre-Jerusalem and then as he sets his face to Jerusalem as an organizing principle. Um, but just like in Matthew's gospel where there's five discourses of Jesus, as it were, a new Pentateuch, a new a, and greater Moses is being presented in Matthew's gospel as it's being organized around the five major discourses of Jesus. Luke, you could organize it around the seven major dinners of Jesus. And during these mealtime devotions, we start to see and taste that the Lord is good. Join me, if you will, in Luke chapter 5 at the first meal as we take this progressive dinner through the gospel. In Luke 5, beginning in uh, verse 27, it says that Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. Now, before we get to this, I, I would just like to point out that one of the things that I was alerted to as I prepared about Jesus satisfying our hunger and thirst for righteousness was the promise in Psalm 85, where the psalmist tells us that loving kindness and truth have met together. 
that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That truth springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven and righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. The way in which Jesus seeks and saves the lost becomes the way of righteousness. We want to look this morning at the way of Jesus so that we can follow in his footsteps. And if we follow in his footsteps like Levi, rising to follow him and learning to walk in his footsteps, that righteousness is going before him to prepare a way for us, what do we find? Well, Levi makes him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining with them at table. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The first thing that Jesus offers, the first thing that Jesus instructs, the first thing that Jesus leads with when you join him at the table is grace. Do you know his grace this morning? Do you see his grace here in these words? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How many of you are so glad that you are not defined by your folly and your sin and your mistakes? That you are not stuck in the direction in which you were headed? That you have had an opportunity and still, even this day, His mercies are new every morning. And there is an opportunity for you to turn from your selfish and sinful and foolish ways and to walk in wisdom and to begin anew and to start over. How many of you are thankful that God offers grace to you and an opportunity to do different and to be different and to not be defined by that which you have done? That your destiny isn't defined by your mistakes or your sin. That you are not defined by what you've done, but you're defined by what God has done for you. And that when he makes a place for you at his table, the first way that he makes a way for you, when he pulls out a seat and invites you to sit with him, it's an invitation of grace. I hope that you are renewing your heart and that you are feasting on that gospel truth this morning. That whatever it is, that you think prohibits you from joining God at his table, of being a part of his family, that where your sin abounds, the scriptures teach that his grace abounds all the more. It doesn't matter how dry a biscuit is, if you put enough gravy on that thing, it is good. And his love covers a multitude of sins. Yours and mine and everyone here. And so 
as you join God at his table, you come through grace. We often say when we gather together, before we even eat, we say grace. We give thanks. And recognize that all that we have is a gift from God. Do you realize that in the manna in the wilderness that God fed them for 40 years, that their obedience didn't depend upon his faithfulness to be kind to them day after day? Have you thought about that? They're grumbling, they're wandering. Their rejection of his promises, the fact that they had to wander to begin with because they rejected trusting in him and entering into the promised land, that day after day he reminded them of his grace by feeding them because of his goodness, not because of theirs. This is what Jesus is telling those that would ask the question, why do you eat with these people? Because repentance and the opportunity to change and to do different and to be different is a gift and it's for everyone. And it's for you. The next meal that we see Jesus in, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. The gospel is not a gospel of works. It's not a gospel where you're defined by what you do. It's a, it's a gospel of grace. It's def- we are defined by what God has done. That's the first truth of the gospel that we find in this progressive dinner. The second is found in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36 or so. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And so when Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I also have something to say to you. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50, and they could not pay. And so he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered rather reluctantly, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the largest debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now those that were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? 
And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love this because you know what happens when people hear that you're a, that you're a person of grace? They start trusting you. Why does she show up? Because she heard that there's this teacher and he's gracious. He's not judgmental. He offers repentance. And all those who come, he will not cast out. And so she shows up because she hears of his offer of grace. And like the admonition in Romans chapter 12, when when those who see the mercy of God and experience and taste the grace of God, what is the only rational and reasonable response to God's grace? Lord Jesus, I'll love you and serve you forever. We just fall at his feet. Why would you have mercy on me? Why would you show me kindness? See, the crumbs at this table, when the bread was broken, were full of forgiveness. That's the second thing. Do you know that you can't break bread with people? That you actually can't fellowship? That you can't join others at the table without forgiveness? It's the currency of the kingdom. It's, the, it's one of the main ingredients of the gospel. You can't join God at his table. You can't join Jesus at the table of grace apart from forgiveness. A marriage can't survive without forgiveness. Parenting is predicated on forgiveness. Parents asking forgiveness of their children, children asking forgiveness of their parents and their siblings. Forgiveness is what we should be feasting on. It's what makes us people who are being conformed to the image of Jesus. Do you know the forgiveness of God this morning? Have you been reminded during our time of confession and assurance of the forgiveness of God this morning? Are you feasting on that this morning? That's why we're here, brothers and sisters, is because of God's forgiveness for us. Unless there be anyone here who would say, Sean, If you knew what God knows about me, if others here knew about me, what God knows about me, well, can I just tell you this morning, God knows about you what I don't know about you. God knows about you what others here don't and that you're hiding. And you know what? God has pulled out the chair and he's invited you to join him at this table. He's offered you forgiveness. Don't be a beggar on the street asking for food when he's prepared a banquet at his table and invited you in. There is forgiveness for you forever and for always through the gracious invitation of Jesus. That's the good news. That's what makes it such good news. Because there's none here that need not forgiveness. There is only one. And he offered his forgiveness for all of us. He prayed for us that his Father would forgive us, for we know not what we do.
Jesus reminds us as we join him at his table that it's a table where admission comes through his gracious invitation. That membership in his family comes through his forgiveness and our forgiveness of others. Chapter 11, if you want to turn again, we find him at the table again. Beginning in 1137. The Pharisees continue to ask him to dine with them while still leveraging the charge that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. So while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and so he went in and reclined at the table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. Now, this isn't an excuse for the kids. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Jesus didn't wash before dinner. This is an object lesson for Jesus. Jesus is using this as a teachable moment. He's making a point. The Pharisee was astonished, and the Lord said, You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Did not he who make the outside also make the inside? Give alms to those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, because you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. I love that he uses mealtime menu items. <laughs> In preparing this meal, you tithe from your spice rack. And yet you neglect the justice and the love of God. Better is a plate full of vegetables, the proverb author would write, right? Than a place of contention and strife. You love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you. You're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing that. What he's telling them and he's pointing out is their hypocrisy. When he calls them unmarked graves, what he's, what he's saying is people are unclean by their association with you, and yet you don't even warn them. By coming in contact with unclean things, your, your, your cleanliness is superficial. You're like an unmarked grave where people walk by thinking that this will not defile them, and yet just by association, they're defiled by you because of your hypocrisy. It's interesting, the lawyers are there, and, and um, they're at the table, and they're, they said, teacher, in saying these things, you, you also insult us. I mean, you didn't mean to insult us too, did you? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be vague. Let me be more explicit. Woe to you, lawyers, because you load up people with burdens hard to bear. You yourselves do not even touch them with one of your fingers. Woe to you. Let me be explicit about your hypocrisy as well. One of the things that prevents us, the gospel confronts, it doesn't just offer us grace and forgiveness, it, it confronts our hypocrisy. If you are going to experience God's grace, you're going to have to admit, you're going to have to forsake your works. You're going to have to admit you need it. If you're going to appreciate and appropriate God's forgiveness, you're going to have to confess your sins. 
You're going to have to forsake your hypocrisy. You're going to have to be real with people about the state of your soul and your life and your marriage and your kids and your home. Woe to the hypocrites. What he's warning of and what he offers is the opportunity to receive renewal, to be made whole, to be made new, to make to have integrity. The gospel of integrity. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Praise be to God who gives us his spirit. There is now therefore no condemnation in us. I need not hide my hypocrisy. I need not fear admitting my need for grace and forgiveness. I can be honest. I can be authentic. I can be real. And Jesus actually says, it's only those people who are welcome at the table. You can be real. You can be honest. We are a people of grace and forgiveness. That's why the first two meals set the stage for this lesson. On hypocrisy. See, people will hide their sin, they'll hide their addictions, they'll hide their struggles from others if, if they're not sure that those people are, will receive them with grace and forgiveness and kindness and mercy. So it's incumbent upon us not to just proclaim God's grace and forgiveness, but to also embody it and to offer it. Rather than just point the fingers at those who are being hypocritical, we ought to extend a hand, open our arms, invite them in. We've got to keep moving because time doesn't permit more on this. If you'll turn again to chapter 14, something that goes hand in hand. An obstacle to God's grace and forgiveness, an obstacle to walking in lives of integrity comes here. In chapter 14, we hear that he goes to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And he heals a man with dropsy. And he asks them a question. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath will not immediately pull him out? And they couldn't reply to him. They're watching him carefully to try to bring a charge against him. He heals someone on the Sabbath. He asks them a question and they cannot answer. Why can't they answer? Because their hypocrisy will be exposed. They can't answer because their pride is choking them. The words are getting caught in their throat because they're choking on their own pride. He tells them a parable. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't just sit down in the place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. And him who invited you both come and say, give your place to this person. Will you begin to be... Uh, with shame to take the lower place. But when you're invited, go sit at the lowest place 
so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus, to those who are choking on their own pride, Jesus offers humility. The gospel of humility. Humble yourself. See, at the table, when you, when you sit at the table of, of grace and of forgiveness and God's mercy and, and, and God's kindness, Jesus, those who are proud, Jesus kind of excludes. He says, will you move over? I, I, really, I really have nothing to say to you. There's really nothing I want to discuss with you. I really actually don't want to spend time with you. I, 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 during this meal, during this time of fellowship together, those who are, have forsaken their pride, who can come in humility, can come in authenticity, can admit their need for grace and forgiveness and their struggles, those hum- come sit closer. I, I would love to spend some time with you. See, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I would simply ask if you're failing to feast on the goodness of God this morning, is it because of your own pride? Are you unwilling to let go of that which you hold so dear? The opinion that you have of yourself. And offer to be redefined by God's opinion of you. He won't leave you there. He will raise you up. He will exalt you. But it requires that you come in humility. For sake of time this morning, I'll have, we're going to have to skip a meal. You're just going to have to go back and visit chapter 15, the next chapter. It's a very famous chapter. Most of you are familiar with it. The whole chapter begins with, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Again, continuing the theme and the idea of the lost son and the lost coins and the lost sheep are all come out of this mealtime devotion showing the empathy of God, the sympathy of God, that he is not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness and that he calls us to sympathize and empathize with others. We have a Savior who is not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Amen? He doesn't just say, oh, that's too bad. He can sympathize with us. He can understand. He can empathize with us. He's been tempted in every way in which we are, yet without sin. And he rejoices when we respond at his invitation that we've been looking at. Go ahead and jump with me to uh, chapter 22. We'll, we'll, We'll cover these last two meals as we just rehearse the gospel truths. This morning, one of the most famous meals, the meal that we often um, celebrate together, remembering this gospel truth that embodies, embodied in this Passover meal. In, in verse 14 of chapter 22, well, when the hour came, He reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Do you see the, the truth embedded in this meal that Jesus is presenting to them? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus said, I will not eat of this meal and I will not drink of this cup until the kingdom comes, until righteousness be done. And on the cross he would say, I thirst. And he's telling them this is what this meal is pointing to. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise with the cup after they had eaten, he said, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. How great is God that he would dine with the man who would betray him. I'm not speaking of Judas, I'm speaking of me. And the disciples like us, how do they respond to this, deliver, this, <laughs> this truth that we rejoice in, this, this amazing grace? A dispute arises about which one of them is the greatest. Back to their pride. But Jesus tells them, let the greatest among you be as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It's not, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The other gospel ingredient that Jesus offers us is service. Not to be served, but to serve like him. He, he rebukes selfish ambition. Not because he doesn't like you, not because he doesn't want to exalt you. He does exalt the humble. We've just talked about that. But it takes humility. We have to forsake selfish ambition. We have to stop feeding on our own selfish desires. Jesus doesn't tell us this uh, because he doesn't love us, but because he knows that those things won't satisfy. It's like a man wandering in the desert drinking a vial of salt. If all you're doing is feeding yourself on your own selfish desires and your own selfish ambition, you will never be satisfied. You will always be hungry. Your thirst will never be quenched. It only is quenched when you give your life away. You believe the gospel that he who loses his life will find it. He who takes up his cross and follows Jesus will understand what life eternal is. Where meaning and value and significance come from. What true greatness is. It doesn't come in having... The number of people who serve me increase. It's the number of people whom I've served increases. I'm more hopeful about the number of people who show up at my funeral. 
or who I could meet on the other side of glory. As those who I served with the strength that God provides. So Jesus says, if you're feasting on your own selfishness and self-centeredness and your own selfish ambitions and aspirations, if all you're thinking about of yourself, you're, you're, you're starving yourself. Your soul is, is drying up. You will never be satisfied. Your thirst will never be quenched. You have to forsake that and taste and see that the Lord is good. It's better than anything you could provide for yourself. Have you, have you experienced that? The joy of giving? You ever remember, do any of you remember the first Christmas where you actually enjoyed giving the gift more than like what you were going to get? Sometimes that comes through parenting. All right? I mean, I go to Disney not because I want to go to Disney, because I want to see my kids at Disney. And Jesus says, that is life. That is true life. And there was no one greater sitting at the table than Jesus. And yet he sat as one who served. The last meal in Luke's gospel, and we'll conclude. On the resurrection, he meets the men on the road to Emmaus, and he indicates it looks like he's going to continue on, but they asked him to stay with them. For it was toward evening, and the day was spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And while he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it. And he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. They returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven. And they said to him, The Lord has risen, and he had appeared to us, and he has appeared to Simon also. And they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The phrase that Luke uses there about what Jesus does as he takes the bread and he gives thanks, he breaks and he distributes, is used several times in the gospel. It's used uh, in the feeding of the 5,000. It's used at the Last Supper that we just looked at. It's used here. But this phrase could be uh, a summary statement of what Luke has been showing us throughout the whole gospel, that Jesus is made known to us as we join him at the table. His grace is made known. His forgiveness is made known. Our hypocrisy is exposed. The need for humility and the rebuke of our own pride. His sympathy and empathy for us. His service of us. He is made known to us as we join him at the table in the breaking of the bread. That's where he's made known to us. And that's how he was made known to them. And the last thing that he offers when he joins them at the table, the thing that he offers them and tells them that they need is faith. That without faith, it's an incomplete meal. All the courses have not been served. You haven't really experienced all that God has to offer. It requires faith on our part. You see, what was the meal? Why was the meal offered? What was he doing? He was showing them. See, things didn't turn out the way they thought they would. Things didn't go according to the way that they had planned or that they had hoped. And he said, foolish of heart and slow to have faith, slow to believe. Later when he meets the other disciples in the upper room, 
He says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? It's me, touch me. See, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as I have. And when he had showed him his hands and his feet, while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. And he said, do you have anything to eat? Let me eat with you and let me, and why don't you eat with me and let your heart be renewed in faith in me. See, that's the other thing that you need. Without faith, you will never truly be able to join God at his table and enjoy all that he has and see and taste that he's good. Because without faith, you'll be tempted to doubt that God is good. When you look at the circumstances of your life, when you look at the, what's going on in the world, when you look at what seems like evil is triumphing or, or people are beyond God's reach, we have to be reminded of the cross and the resurrection. We have to be reminded of God's sovereignty and to put faith in him. And what Jesus is saying at the meal is, hey, remember, there was the meal before the cross, and now there's a meal after the cross. That was Good Friday. This is Sunday supper. So great is God's sovereignty that he can take the crucifixion and the rejection of God, the greatest mistake we have ever made in the rejection of our Savior, the embodiment of God's love, and we could reject it and nail him to a cross and say, that's what we think of God and his ways. And God could take our greatest mistake, the thing that we need the greatest forgiveness for. He could take our betrayal and our hypocrisy and our sin And he could turn it into our greatest blessing, the very same event. The greatest blessing that we'll ever receive was that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross, died for our sins, that God offers us the grace and the table and the forgiveness that he prepares for us comes at the cost of Christ. And the cup that we drink is the cup of his forgiveness that was poured out for us. Our greatest mistakes turned into our greatest blessings. How can it be, my brothers and sisters, how can it be? Only through eyes of faith can it be appropriated and appreciated. Don't let your circumstances, don't let your sin, don't let your your current situation rob you of your faith. Let's pray. Father, during this uh, time, our time together this morning, as we consider Jesus and his ways, we thank you for this, for this metas, metaphor. We thank you for the means at which he communicated. We thank you that you prepare a table for us. That you demonstrate your love for us. And that while we were sinners, you offer us grace and forgiveness. For all those who would forsake their pride and their hypocrisy. You sympathize with our weakness and you come not to be served, but you come You set the table, and you don't just sit at the head. You serve up the helpings. You serve us through love. Father, we pray that you would take those truths, 
that you would feed our hearts, our souls with them, that we would be renewed by them, and as a result that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. Awaken our appetite for righteousness. Quench our thirst for truth. And feed us, we pray, with faith in your Son, whom you raised from the dead and and sits before you, ever making intercession for us. It's in his name and through him that we pray. Amen.